Let me pray and we'll get started. Father, at this point was such short notice. My nerves and anxiety are, are, are high only because of the fact it's your word and it must be dealt with rightly. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit would take control, control of me, and control our hearts this morning and open them up to be able to be responsive to the word. God, guide our hearts, get us over our internal pride and our, our desire to think we've got everything going well. Help us to be honest with you and honest with ourselves. Father, we definitely love you and know that you have done so much to care for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Well, we all know that the gospel must be front and center of our life. You've heard the term, the gospel-centered life. You've said, seen books. You've seen everything else. We definitely get the idea that it must be constantly centered. You've got Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6. It says, The gospel which has come to you, just in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. The gospel. Is it just a term or really the center of a believer's life? Do we know just what it means and does that meaning grow in us every day in our lives? Is it critical to understand? Absolutely. But it's critical to understand it correctly. Today we are placing the phrase, the gospel, centered on seemingly everything. And if you ever want to call this message, you could say the gospel centered everything. I did a short look in the internet. Always careful, you have to be careful what you do in the internet. But this was interesting. You can have topics such as being gospel centered. Here's some fun ones discipleship, life, theology, musings. Don't get that one. Family, marriage, women, living, accountability, gospel center home, parenting, church, ministry, expectations, community groups, manhood, worship leader, community, hermeneutics, funerals, and etc. It list goes on and on. So as we look at the gospel centered everything, which we're not going to really want to promote. The fact is we want a gospel-centered life ourselves. What's it mean? Tim Chelles posted an article back in 2013. He said, this is good. God really does mean for the gospel to be central to the lives of his people and to be right at the center of the church. Joe Thorne defines the gospel-centered life like this. The gospel-centered life is a life where a Christian experiences a growing personal reliance on the gospel that protects him from depending on his own religious performance and being seduced and overwhelmed by idols. Meanwhile, the gospel-centered church is a church that is about Jesus above everything else. That sounds a little obvious, but when we talk about striving to be and maintain gospel centrality as a church, we are recognizing our tendency, notice this, to focus on many other things, often good and important things, but instead of Jesus. 
there are really only two options for local churches. They will be gospel-centered or issue-centered. That makes sense? So it is the gospel, and how do we keep it central in our lives? Let's first look quickly, go through the gospel, but I found this quote that was, again, quite interesting. The gospel is not behavior modification. Becoming a better person or learning to become more moral, it's not taking the life of Jesus as a model way to live and transforming or redeeming the secular realm. It is not living highly communal lives with others and sharing generously in communities who practice the way of Jesus in local culture. The true gospel, rather, is news about what Christ the Savior has already done for us in his life, death, and resurrection rather than instruction and advice about what you are to do for God. Christ's accomplishment, not ours, is the essence of the gospel. As we look at this again, let's go back. It's a text of scripture. I have to keep looking at myself and my own life. But 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul very simply asks the question, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Are you a Christian because you grew up in a Christian family? You grew up in a Christian nation? You follow Jesus because everyone else did. You want hell insurance. Or it just sounds good. In Mississippi, when I was a college youth pastor, it was interesting. I was sharing. Of course, I was in the Bible Belt. I was a young guy. not didn't understand. I thought the Bible Belt, everybody were Christians, and everybody loved the Bible. I was sharing the gospel with this one guy at a baseball game one time and going on and sharing the gospel and really talking to the reality that he was kind of defining his Christian faith based on things that he did. So I went through the gospel and said, for by grace you have been saved and not through yourself. It's the gift of God. Went through all that. Well, he kept pushing back on that stuff and finally what resolved and ended the whole deal, he says, well, I know I'm a Christian because my grandparents founded the church. (laughs) And he walked off. See, it's amazing how we attach ourselves being a Christian based on something else. I was always thankful that MacArthur helped us to constantly understand what the gospel really was and our testimony and the reality of being a Christian. Christianity and the evidence of being a Christian is not a past event. It is a constant present reality. It's something you can check now, here. You don't go back and say, well... I had a conversion experience when I was five. If anybody asked me that, I, wouldn't, I can't remember anything when I was five. Barely remember anything when I was in junior high, okay? But the gospel is not something that is external and something you check off. It is something that absolutely drives and lives inside of us. Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 are very clear about where this gospel foundation starts. The Lord God commanded the man, 
saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Adam was denied the tree to test his obedience and to prove that he was willingly under God's command. You move to Genesis 3, 1 through 5, we notice the time period where the serpent comes and deceives Eve. The words of the serpent contradicted God's revelation and suggested that the creator-creature distinction could be removed, giving way to the thought that man and God could be equal. Genesis 3.6 moves further and says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit. Eve decided that she no longer needed to depend on God and committed herself to independence. That's where it started. You think Frank Sinatra was far off key? When his infamous song, I Did It. (laughs) That's right out of Satan's playbook. That one is the natural cry of humanity right out of the gate. I always laugh on a side note. People say, oh, those cute little angel children. (laughs) Eh, You haven't raised any kids, have you? (laughs) They're evil. And man, they're, they're working on you. They might be just the bottle and the diaper, but you know that scream says, Now! Right. Some of you guys got the grandkids. You're repeating that whole scenario again, you know. Eve took the revelation of the independent God and placing it on the same level as the serpent's words, setting herself up as the judge over what was true. So it was the essence of man's sin in the fall. Man's rebellion against recognizing his dependence on God in everything and his assumption in his ability to be independent from God. Now you're getting the idea. The whole life's battle as true believers is the fight to stop being independent of God. I've said it a time and I have to keep saying to myself constantly, The center letter of the word sin is I. You know what's so tightly, closely connected to that? Is the center letter of the word pride. They're cousins. They're together. You get a clear understanding of the battle, as Paul describes it in the letter to the Romans in chapter 7. You remember that constant battle? Have you ever read through that and go... The inside of me is connecting and I'm, I'm wrestling with the same thing. After all, he describes the intensity of the battle between the spirit and the flesh and he lands with a devastating question, but the answer is in the center of the gospel. You remember that? This is, with this plight that I have, what's the answer? What do I do? It's Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he did. It's what the Father did. And it's what Jesus is doing now. 
He is the God-man who lived a dependent and obedient life before the Father doing what we could not do. He died on the cross taking our place, paying for our sins, and taking the wrath of the Father on him in our place. And the Father being satisfied show that payment was full by raising his Son from the dead. And today he was with the Father interceding for us, being the perfect sacrifice for us. Remember that point? Go back to Romans 7, 24 and 25. Paul says, wretched man that I am, me. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. What are the effects of the fall? What makes it so important to be a Christ-centered life? These are fast notes, but some points. From birth, all are corrupted by sin. That definitely counters the people of the cute little baby and everything. In the, and then they were taught to be nasty and mean by us nasty, mean parents. Mm-mm. Okay? Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David knew it. David knew his, his core corruption started it before birth. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and the death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Jeremiah 8.9 The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what kind of wisdom do they have? In Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. We're in desperate need, but we cannot do anything in ourselves. We need the gospel. We need the Christ-centered life. D.A. Carson says that the gospel centers upon Jesus Christ and what God has done through him. The essential points of the gospel are Jesus Christ's status as the Son of God, his genuine humanity, his death for our sins, his burial, resurrection, subsequent appearances, and the future coming in judgment that no one is justified but in the gracious work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. It is not merely a recital of theological terms and historical events. Rather, it relates these truths and events to situations of every individual believer. The gospel is not about merit that I have, but is based upon Jesus' person and merit alone, not me. Romans 5.19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
I know this is Quote City, right? This is R.C. Sproul. He says the Bible makes it clear that we are justified not by our works, but by our efforts, not by our deeds, but by faith and faith alone. The only way you can receive the benefit of Christ's life and death is by putting your trust in him and him alone. You do that, you're declared just by God. You're declared just by God, and you're adopted into his family. You're forgiven of all of your sins, and you have begun your pilgrimage for eternity. So what are some of the wrong views of the gospel? Many Christians live with a truncated view of the gospel. We see the gospel as the door, the way in, the entrance point in the kingdom of God. The gospel is much more. It's the path we are to walk every day in the Christian life. So what happens in our lives when there is a proper balance of the gospel growing in our lives? It changes. It changes us internally. But the key is, how do we get growing and how do we keep going in the gospel centered life? We were talking about it this morning. Just the, just the reality of the gospel centered life sounds really neat in theory, right? It's like, wow, this is a really neat catchphrase. But it's hard. I mean, you're going along in the day, you got about five minutes into the day, and you're really focused on Jesus, and you're presenting yourself to him first thing in the morning, and how long is it before you're caught with the stuck with the issues, and that's the only thing that's sitting in the center of your mind? I said five minutes, how about five seconds? That's about as far as I'm, I'm just gone. I mean, the minute I wake up, I said, Jesus, I'm here, I want to serve you. My gosh, what am I going to do today at work? The list is going to be huge. How long did that take for me to go right or left? So how do we stay in a Christ-centered life? It's not easy, I'll guarantee you that. But the first thing, and it's basic, but we forget it, and that's not always the highest priority in our life, it's the Word of God. Remember this one, Psalm 119.11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Does that ever knock your head off? That I might not sin against you. Have you ever dug into that one? MacArthur stated one time that over the years of study of the Word, he has memorized much. That wasn't an ego thing. That was just reality in studying the Word. So when a temptation comes, there are hundreds of verses that flood through his mind and through his heart to protect him from sin. That's what David was saying. Do you know the Word so much that the minute a temptation hits, you're barraged by the Word? You're in... You're just absolutely flooded. That's an open question. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Psalm 42, 1. And this one we all know. But can we say it for ourselves? 
As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Spurgeon said, if I have not my Lord in near and dear communion, it is at least the next best thing to me, unutterably wretched until I find him. I do not sit at his banquets, yet blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. If my beloved is not in my embrace, yet so long as I am not contented without him, so long as I sigh and cry and follow hard after him, I may be assured that I am in the possession of his love and that before long I shall find him to the joy of my soul. Don't raise your hands. But how often are you in the study of the Word of God? You notice I didn't use the word read. I used the word study. I remember growing up, you had your little read time, and you did it, and into the day you went. That's reading. But that's not going to bury that into your heart, and that's not going to make it part of the bloodstream of your life. It's going to be a read. How many of you read the newspaper and can't remember a cotton-picking thing that you've read? Well, that's what you're doing to the Word. If you're just reading it, it's not the newspaper for the day. It's the bread of life. So it takes study, it takes grinding, it takes chewing, it takes getting it in. It takes a long time sometimes to get some of that word in there. I always like it when we were under Rick Holland's teaching. I always kept saying, we're going to mine this. And I went, what's that? Be? Then I started thinking about mining. How deep do you have to go in some mines to get some of that ore out? You've got to get down into the word deep. Take your time. Somebody says, I've read the Bible in a year. Whoop. Dee-doo-da-day. I'd much rather you really have a whole chapter solid and living it out, then go, whoo, I got the whole word. You get the cursory read, I got it. But make sure you're studying the word. Study to show yourself approved. Not read to show yourself. You see how that text doesn't play well with readers? Get in the word, chew, grind, dig. Hear sermons on it. Re-listen to Steve's sermons on it. Go back and just... Over and over. Do you realize how many times you can read and listen to sermons of the same text and get much more every single time you go into it? Have you ever reread and restudied a section over and over? Give it a five years, you go back and restudy it again, take a look at your notes. I had that with one of the junior hires back in California. It was fun. David said, Let's study the Word of God. I said, Cool. I said, What do you want to start with? He says, First John. Are you kidding me? Okay, yay, let's do First John. So we got into studying First John. He took notes and everything. It was kind of fun. Back when he was a senior in high school, quite a few years later, he started restudying First John. He kind of still had his notes. He like he goes, "Oh my gosh, where was I? That so much has changed. So much has grown." He looks at his notes and he goes, "That was wow. It's a big difference." About five years difference in those first notes going through John, taking a look at his current notes going, there's been a lot of growing up. 
I like this. MacArthur, before he starts to teach or study a book, he said, read once through for 30 days before you study and then get into the study. Another one, Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. MacArthur, How to Study the Bible. If you need some help, either get anybody around you, any of the elders will help you through it. It takes a little bit of exercise because it takes a little work, but these are great resources. Get in the Word. Study it. Get deep into them. The next part is definitely prayer. Prayer is a lot of times something. Now, I did have another message today to, to kind of confront us on the lack of attendance for our prayer meetings. Like tonight, okay? I know there's a lot of attitude. Well, I can pray at home or I can do this or just give me the sheet. or You know what? When you're praying in communion with fellow believers, it's life-changing. And we need to be together to pray for one another. But let me ask you, how many of you in this class will not be here tonight because you've got other things to do? Really? You have other things to do. do you have to, if you have to go to work, I got it. But do you have other things to do on Sunday? Sunday is set aside to spend time with the Lord and his people, right? So why aren't you going to be here tonight? First question. You don't have anything that pressing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. I've always asked, how do you do that? I had one friend, he says, yeah, constantly keep praying when you're driving, but don't close your eyes. I went, got that. You do it when you're dependent upon God for everything. John Piper says what it does mean to pray without ceasing. It means that there's a spirit of dependence that should permeate all we do. Okay. This is the very spirit and essence of prayer. So even when you are not speaking consciously to God, there is a deep abiding dependence on him. Notice the repeated phrase dependence that is woven into the heart of faith. In that sense, we pray or have the spirit of prayer continually. I always wonder why we say the word amen like we've closed the conversation, done, dropped the connection, we're gone. I usually don't do that when I start out in the day. I just have these conversations with God constantly in and out. I see something, I'm going along. I going. I see somebody on the road that's in a wheelchair. I'm going to be talking to God about him, whether they know, know him and ask that the Lord would break into their heart if they do not know for the handicap that they have is nothing compared to the handicap of being a sinner without God's love and going to hell. Do we pray that way? We never stop needing to repent, too. Repentance is another piece. In the first of his 95 Theses, Martin Luther observed, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. For the most of us, the word repentance has a negative connotation. We only repent when we do something really bad. Repentance needs to be true. Let me ask you this question. Can you perform repentance 
falsely. Can you have a false repentance? You can. This might be a cheap example, but let's take a look at it. Think, for instance, about a relationship in which you've spoken hurtful words to someone else. Perhaps your effort at repentance sounded something like this. I'm sorry, I hurt you. I shouldn't have said that. Will you forgive me? But is this really true repentance? Does our sin consist only in the words we've spoken? Ever gone under the covers? Check. Didn't Jesus say, out of the outflow of the heart, the mouth speaks? There's something corrupt inside. Though we may have acknowledged our hurtful words, the other person is often feeling the impact of the deeper resentment, anger, envy of bitterness that lies in our hearts. Unless we confess those sins as well, our repentance is not true repentance at all. Do you agree? Never thought of it that way, did you? I'm sorry. How many times you've seen that in your kids and your grandkids and everything? And you, you tend, and I hear, hear a lot of times with my grandkids, they'll always say, the parents will always say, now say sorry to your sister. Sorry. Do we do that to other people? Uh-huh. Two elements of sin keeps us from true repentance. First, we think too highly of ourselves. <laughs> pride, and we think we have the power to change ourselves, I. Biblical true repentance is orientated towards God, not me. Remember what David said against you and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Motivated by true godly sorrow and not just selfish regret. Sorry, I got caught. Second Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Look to Jesus for deliverance for the penalty and power of sin. That's hard. Repentance is hard. Acts 3, 19 and 20, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. Remember, sin is a condition, not just a behavior. So true repentance is a lifestyle, not just an occasional practice. It's a constant Another piece that's important to keep growing a Christ-centered life. It's so easy to just drop into that stuff. How about fellowship? I'm sorry, I have a hard time when I see the jet rush out of here at the end of service. Steve barely gets amen out and the mass exodus starts. That ain't fellowship. That's just heading on out, doing your next thing. I got stuff to do. I got to get to the restaurant before the Methodists do, okay? 
And we were driving around in Mississippi on our anniversary back in September, and it was quite amazing because we were driving through the south on Sunday trying to get to Columbus. And there were some churches, 12 noon gone empty, parking lot. I mean, does this church exist? Yeah, but they out of there. But there's some other churches. You'd go by 12 o'clock, <laughs> cars everywhere. One o'clock, cars everywhere. One thirty, they're outside in the parking lot. Cars are still there, but they're in the parking lot. What are they having? They're having fellowship. They're spending time with one another. They're not in a rush to go anywhere because this is family. Living in community together, Kenny Poor many years ago said is this way, and I love Kenny Poor during the old uh, back in when I was in San Diego Christian Heritage College. Went to one of his seminars, spent some time with Kenny. He said, fellowship is this. It's two men in one ship. Okay, it's not very theological. He said, where the stern goes, so will the bow go. The trick is that men need to be in the same boat. We need to be close enough to know the movement of our brothers. And when we are down... Our brothers will not need to ask the question, but will know and move to minister. That's when we're fellowshipping with one another because we will know when each other needs our ministry to them. Romans 12, 15 and 19, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, but of the same mind toward one another, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We need to be in fellowship with one another. Spend time. I remember even Steve's tried to cover the issue and has even come up with the fact, you know, there's some of us aren't really very pleasant to be near. Right? Well, we have to deal with ourselves and get that nasty attitude checked. But it doesn't cause any of us a right to not fellowship. If somebody's nasty, fellowship and pray for them. Spend time. I had a situation where I had a brother, unfortunately, in the high school ministry of grace I had to, I had to deal with because he was on staff. <laughs> Darn. And, you know, Young was not really pleasant. He was just, I don't know, just not somebody you'll warm up too quick, right? But God kind of slapped me up the side of the head and kind of went, um... You're on staff with them. You need to be work with them. So you need to get over this, and you need to get to know your brother. Oh, I was really grumpy at God going, come on, anybody else. But yeah. So I went, all right, all right. So we started getting together, and oh, man, the rough edge and everything. Long story short, <laughs> I was the best man in his wedding. We're great friends today. I saw my brother grow, and I got to be part of it, to see it, 
and he was still growing. And the funny thing is, you know, you get together, the, you know, all the bachelor dudes getting together, and we kind of have, we, so we went to Disney, tradition, you know. We went to Disney, went back to the house, and all, all of us guys were sitting around. And I just said, hey, guys, could you go around the circle and just kind of give me your testimony of when you met Young? And it was hilarious. We're all saying about the city. He was nasty. He was grumpy. He was, you know, just this whole. And about halfway through, he said, "All right, guys, all right." I knew I was. Uh. But you know, the funny thing is, you look at all of us had the same experience with that brother, but we got a chance to be involved with that brother. We prayed for our brother. We saw our brother growing up and growing, and we were still there with him, with his wedding, and to be there. Yeah, we all had the same starting point. But we spent time with him. Was he nasty? Yeah, in the beginning. But he wasn't then. Fellowship. Part of it, too, if you ever study him, go study the one another's of the Bible. There are more than 50 one another's in the New Testament. They all focus not on us, but on those around us, especially those of the household of faith. And the last piece is probably the most disquieting, most uncomfortable thing is accountability. Each of us having accountability. Accountability is one of the means God uses to bring about solid growth and maturity with the freedom to be what God has created us. Definition, by accountability we are not talking about coercive tactics, the invasion of privacy or bringing others under the weight of someone's taboos or legalism, or manipulative, or dominating tactics. Rather, by accountability, we mean developing relationship with other Christians that help to promote spiritual reality, honesty, obedience to God, and genuine evaluations of one's walk in relationship with God and with others. We are sheep that are prone to wander. Did you forget that? Sheep will walk right off a cliff. We need to take care of one another. Accountability to others is simply one of the ways God holds us accountable to him. Left to ourselves, little islands. There is the great temptation to do mainly what we want rather than what God wants and what is best for others. Accountability holds us in check. Do you want that? Do you want others in your life, not as manipulators, but guides, can't tell you how many times my wife has said, did you notice you were doing that? No. There's a lot of things I don't see about me. I was working in a job one time that it was, I was, Man, I tell you, I was—I didn't know it, but I was becoming one nasty dude. And then I got out of that job and everything, and everyone goes, "Man, you're so much nicer." Now this is while I was still here, okay? Believe it or not, you're so much more nicer. You're not so grumpy, and you're not so negative. Uh, sorry. I didn't know. But see, if I had accountability and if somebody was involved, they would be pointing out, yeah, I'd be resistive, right? I'd probably push back a little bit, but if you love me enough, you're going to keep pushing and helping me to see it. 
My pride's going to push and say, I'm fine. But I need you to lovingly just stay there and not let go and not go away and say, we're going to get through this together, just like my brother Young. I stayed the course with that brother. Still love him today and just excited to see all the stuff going on. Great marriage. But you got to stay there. No, I don't like somebody poking their finger in squishy parts in my life. But I need it. I don't see my own flaws. My pride is pretty good at that. I look in the mirror in the morning and go, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Ephesians 5.21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Accountability is to bring about greater and greater obedience to the Savior as those first and foremost accountable to him. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another, build up one another, just as you also are doing. We have a responsibility to one another to build up, to encourage, to lift, to grow. We're not on islands, folks. Have you ever noticed that? We're not on islands. Jesus never created this universe for us to be independent from one another and independent from everything. He's created us to be dependent upon him and dependent upon one another. When you don't do that, Man, you are open fodder for Satan to tear you wide open and shred you. Encourage in the Greek is to call alongside to help, to enable, to comfort, to exhort. Build up is to edify, to restore and repair. Colossians 1, 5, and 6 again. The gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So let me ask you this. Are you constantly bearing fruit and increasing because of the gospel? The reality of all that Jesus Christ did and is doing? And are you deeply in love with Jesus? Are you deeply dependent upon God? Look at your life. What do you see? A man in a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus sees the holiness of God more each day. So examine your life. See if you be in the faith. If you fail the test and repent, and believe today, right now, if you feel far from God, I love this statement, guess who moved? Repent of your independence and cling dependently on God, our Father. That is the Christ-centered life. We need the Word. We need prayer. We need fellowship. We need accountability. That's what keeps it stirring and hot. If you've gotten cold to Jesus and cold in your relationship to God and it's become mechanical, go back and enjoy the Word. Maybe it's been months since you've been in the Word. Start. 
just start today. Oh, I got to make up. No, 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 no. You don't have to make up anything. That's what Jesus did on the cross. You got to get started. Prayer. Start. Tonight might be a good start. Fellowship. Take someone to lunch. Invite them over for dinner, a cup of coffee, whatever. Fellowship. Get out of yourself. Accountability. <laughs> Rick was doing a series on accountability years ago, and he says, you know what you want to do to find someone that you want to be accountable to? You find someone that scares you. Then I had one of the students come up and wanted to spend some time and let's do some discipleship together. I said, so why me? And he says, because you scare me. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. <laughs> but it's true. You don't want someone to mamby-pamby and kind of just pat you on the head. You want someone to kind of go, uh-uh, don't, uh-uh, don't go that way. Kids want that from their parents, Right? And then for some reason we grow up and we don't think we want it from anybody. No, 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 no. Same thing. We want to be held accountable to the Word, to Jesus. It's hard. It's a pride squisher, but we need that. Maybe let's spend some time in our prayer times and asking for areas of that we are needing prayer on. Not because they got a hangnail. Because I got sin that's not being dealt with. I'm just covering it over. Let's pray. Father, you love us so much, and you've, through your son, paid the ultimate price, something we unfortunately really just kind of assume, push aside. We are very prideful, arrogant people and we don't really realize how absolutely 100% totally dependent we are on you. So many times we just so quickly turn around and say, I'll handle it. We forget we just started with the personal pronoun I, which is in sin and pride. Wake us up. Get us out of our little comfort zones, our little cushy groups, and get us into accountability and spending some time with some all the fellow believers to help us to grow and help them to grow. Let's become a body of believers that love to grow together and to encourage one another and grow in strength. Father, make in our hearts a brokenness, a tenderness. Help us to approach you continually as children. Open arms and loving you. Teach us everything we can. Help us to get back into the Word, back into prayer, back into fellowship, and back into accountability. Help us to return to those things that we once did before. God, help us to grow up and to grow. We can't do it without you being front and center of our whole life constantly. Help us to keep that front and center and understood. We love you and we... Realize that we will sin continually. We need to have repentance, just a pattern of our life. Grow us and keep us humble. In Jesus Christ, amen.